This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our second episode in a series around the healing power of plants and gardens in our world, we get an overview of the professional fields of horticultural therapy and evidence-based healing garden design with one of the field's leading spokeswomen and researchers, Dr. Naomi Sachs, founding director of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, a knowledge base and gathering space that provides information, education, advocacy, and inspiration about landscapes that promote health and well-being. The network serves a global, interdisciplinary network of designers, health and human service providers, scholars, and garden and nature enthusiasts. Naomi is co-author with Dr. Claire Cooper-Marcus of Therapeutic Landscapes, an evidence-based approach to designing healing gardens and restorative outdoor spaces, originally published in 2013. She now is on faculty at the University of Maryland as an assistant professor in plant sciences and landscape architecture. Naomi joins us today from Maryland. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you. So, I would like to get started by having you describe in a general way the the nature of therapeutic landscapes as a field of study. This is sort of the basics of the work. Many Cultivating Place listeners may recall your name as being a colleague of Dr. Claire Cooper-Marcus and a co-author with her on the book Therapeutic Landscapes. This was published quite some time ago now in the the world of these things, and a lot has (laughs) happened since then. So I'd love you to give us kind of an updated definition on what the field of therapeutic landscapes even means and encompasses, Naomi? Ooh, that's a great question. And um, it's funny, I was just talking to some colleagues yesterday, we're presenting at a conference on prison recidivism and the role of, of gardens and gardening in potential recidivism and in, in the correctional institution. And and we started with, well, how are we going to define therapeutic landscapes and healing gardens and restorative landscapes? And joking that it sort of changes every day, and each one of us has a different definition. So it's difficult to kind of pin it down. But I often start with a broader definition of landscapes for health, which is really any landscape, wild or designed large or small, that promotes human health and well-being. So it can be as tiny as someone's fire escape with a few plants on it and as large as a redwood forest or Yellowstone or Central Park. And a restorative landscape is similar to that. So it's, uh, again, wild or designed that promotes health and well-being. Then when we get into therapeutic landscapes, we are generally talking about designed landscapes that are for a specific intended purpose and often a specific population. Mm -hmm. So usually with therapeutic landscapes, we're talking about more about the healthcare field and a landscape, for example, in an acute care general hospital that is designed to promote 
stress reduction and increased healing for patients and also for family members and loved ones and staff as well. And so, you know, it may be something as simple as just somewhere where you can go outside, get a breath of fresh air, take a little break from all of the stresses that are going on indoors. And it may be something as structured as a place for rehabilitation, um, which would be called a rehabilitation garden, where that garden is designed with physical therapists, occupational therapists, horticultural therapists to actively help someone with walking, learning how to use a wheelchair, learning how to use um, a cane, learning how to be mobile again or mobile in a different way. Mm -hmm. People use the term healing gardens quite loosely. And I think it's kind of a catch-all. Healing garden is a lot more friendly sounding than therapeutic garden. Mm -hmm. Um, When we hear therapeutic, especially when it comes to healthcare, it usually sounds like work, (laughs) (laughs) Um, like therapeutic shoes and the therapeutic bath. You know, it's um, healing garden sounds warmer. It sounds gentler. It sounds mm, like less work. So I think that in healthcare, when people want to name a garden, I think it's really good for them to say healing garden or meditation garden rather than therapeutic garden or therapeutic landscape. When I named the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, though, I wanted it to have more gravitas Mm -hmm. and a little bit more of an academic field. Because when I founded the TLN, the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, in 1999, this was still a very young field. And anything outside of the doors of a healthcare facility was really seen as kind of frivolous and frou-frou and, you know, icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted it to be taken seriously. Yeah. And your, your description so far has touched on several of the complexities of the topic and uh, both for good and bad. You, you mentioned that healing landscape or healing garden sounds warmer, uh, but it also sort of falls in the purview of a little bit of greenwashing that can go on if you don't have the rigor of the study and the evidence-based design and results that you and your field have really started to articulate and collect data on and report back on. Because, for instance, I can think of at least one hospital I've been to in the last five years or garden uh, or or school garden uh, that is given a name like a healing garden. And it uh, is anything but relaxing to be in because it's cited improperly or it, it just seems like a quick gesture towards a good idea. And yes. so this is this is part of what we will hopefully get into. Um, yeah, and I, I call that healing washing. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. The no. healing garden. And that was really the impetus for my dissertation. But just trying to create 
some structure for evaluation to hold places accountable for what they say is a mm-hmm. quote unquote healing garden and is just, you know, some pavement with one potted plant that's mm-hmm. struggling to survive. Right, right. So before we get into those that those details and mm-hmm. uh, some of the history of the work, let's let's come back to you a little bit. Wh- where were you born and raised, and who were the people and plants and places that made you into a person for whom this field would be your calling? I was born in New Jersey, <laughs> and I spent about six months there with my parents before they moved to northeastern Connecticut, Stores, Connecticut, um, for jobs in academia at the University of Connecticut. And northeastern Connecticut is called the quiet corner because it's very rural. There's not a whole lot going on there other than the university. The university is a land-grant institution that was agricultural when it started. And it is a beautiful place. And there were woods really close to us that I could walk to in about five minutes. There was um, a river called the Fenton River, which is what our current dog is named after. Her name is Fenton. <laughs> <laughs> and the woods and the Fenton River were where I took my joy, my sorrow, where I played. I think I had my first kiss there. Hmm. So... That was a very meaningful place. And fortunately, I grew up in a time and in a community where people let their kids roam. You know, we were the free range kids. And my parents would say, come back before dark. Mm -hmm. And the neighborhood kids would all be out playing or I would go out on my own into the woods. And it was very much the whole area was a place to explore. And once I got older, I cycled to the university, which was two miles away, and cycled to friends' houses. And so I was very fortunate to live in a place where that was possible and also live in a time historically and sociologically where parents felt safe in allowing their kids to wander and get into trouble. Yeah, yeah. But in a safe way. In a safe way, that's right. Sort of safe trouble that allows yeah. us to learn and grow and problem solve. And in in the context of a relationship with nature, uh, which is exactly. getting, I think, much harder for, for parents to find those spaces for children um, for a variety of reasons. And so... You, you cycled to the university there, and then you started down the path. Did you, did you do your undergraduate work in this kind of field? How did you get into this field academically, Naomi? I did not do my undergrad in this field at all. I, I did my undergrad in women's studies. Mm. And as most people who get a Bachelor of Arts know, you, there's not much that you do with that. <laughs> Aside from (laughs) waiting tables or working in a coffee shop, which is exactly what I did after graduating and kind of trying to figure out, well, what else am I going to do with my life? And in addition to working at a coffee shop, I also got very interested in photography and worked for a photographer and also started 
working part-time for the woman who taught photography, who was a garden designer. Hmm. That was her primary profession. And I just loved it. I loved the backbreaking work. I loved how my hands got dirty. I loved the kind of wholesome feeling at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And I had was also renting a small house at the time that had a very small little piece of garden in the back. And I noticed that, especially after a day of working in the coffee shop, when I came home and just pulled weeds or pottered about in the garden, I felt better. Even if I'd had really bad day, I felt better. And so I started thinking about, okay, what am I going to do next? And where is this all going to take me? And around that same time, I came across an issue of Landscape Architecture magazine. And the whole issue was focused on healing gardens. Hmm. And there were probably four or five articles in that issue devoted. And I think there was actually one of the articles was by Claire Cooper Marcus. Hmm. And it was like one of those rare, wonderful light bulb moments yeah, yeah. where I thought, <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe there's some way that I can bring this love of nature and enjoyment of gardening and being in the natural world with creativity and also with perhaps a little bit more steady income than being a fine art photographer or I don't know what else. (laughs) And also could do something good in the world. It could make a difference in people's lives because that's always been a really important thing for me. I was very politically active when I was an undergrad and this felt like a way that I could do something to help people that was more aligned with what I love and what I'm passionate about. So from there, I have to figure out, okay, well, how, how does this all work? And I thought about a few different career options and really took the time to explore those. So one was horticultural therapy Mm-hmm. One was garden design, focusing on healing gardens. One was landscape architecture. And I talked to as many people as I could. I took classes at the University of Rhode Island in horticultural therapy and landscape architecture. I took a class at Radcliffe College in garden design. And Everyone I talked to said, do landscape architecture. It will give you the most options and the most flexibility. And so I started looking at schools uh, for graduate school from, for a master of landscape architecture and chose Berkeley out of the, I don't know, five schools that I looked at because Claire was still there. She had just retired, but she was still very involved and would be one of my thesis committee members. Um, She agreed to that. And there were, you know, Berkeley has a very strong history of socially responsible design and design that really takes people into account. And so there were people still there 
like Walter Hood and Linda Jewell and Louise Mozingo, Randy Hester, who understood the importance of nature and health and connecting people with nature. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dr. Naomi Sachs is an assistant professor in plant sciences and landscape architecture at the University of Maryland. As the founder and keeper of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, she's joining us today to share more about this professional field. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. This episode has me thinking a lot about my own history and the value of landscapes in my life. I was born and raised with plant awareness and appreciation. My mother was a gardener, a professional garden and floral designer, and my father was a wildlife biologist. I grew up surrounded by rural open space and the stillness and fragrance of relatively high elevation ponderosa pine forests at just about 8,000 feet. But I was still blind when it came to the importance of my landscape to my well-being. When, as a late-age teenager, I went off to Barnard College in New York City, I suffered from temporarily intractable depression. I had no thought that it could be related to my surroundings, and my loss of touch with and access to green plants, friends, and community. I had enough instinct to know to get my butt to Central Park whenever I could, to run around the reservoir, to buy flowers when I could afford them. But I did not put the depression together with nature deficit until much later in life. Now granted, I was a young person in that nebulous and insecure coming of age period of time in most people's lives that feels unstable. And the city and the big world were presenting me with new information that was bound to be depressing and thought-provoking. But even so, my ability to cope, my innate resilience was compromised by this nature deficit. And more and more research shows that anyone's is. The importance of safe, accessible, healthy green space is not just nice, it is an absolute necessity to us as a species who have co-evolved to rely on it and who now, at its peril, often fails to protect that very source of our own well-being. Protect your own green space. Protect the green fields and plant family of your immediate neighboring community. Protect it for those who cannot protect it for themselves. The sick, the sad, the tired, the lonely, the as yet unaware. Everyone will feel better the more we care for and protect our green spaces. The outlook right now can be grief-ridden, anger and depression-inducing, but do not succumb. Start where you are. Get out in your garden, in your park, on your city green sidewalks, and breathe deeply, and then encourage and enable everyone you possibly can to do the same. The plants are there. You need them. We all do. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Naomi Sachs of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network on faculty at the University of Maryland.
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Naomi Sachs of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network. Of course, landscapes and plants have been healing as long as we have been a living species on this planet. There is no question that this is not a new field per se, but rather that the codifying of these fields into their various subjects and looking at them scientifically, trying to analyze how and why they work better or worse, was really sort of in its infancy in our country when Naomi was doing her graduate work at Berkeley, fortuitously with Dr. Claire Cooper Marcus. As we come back, Naomi shares with us more about how her early work with Claire led to the Therapeutic Landscapes book, to further research, and to the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, where professionals across the globe share knowledge and passion for the field. In the first couple months that I started as a master's student, master of landscape architecture student at Berkeley, I met with Claire, and she was working on the book Healing Gardens Mm -hmm. with Marnie Barnes Mm -hmm. at that time. And, you know, we were having lunch and chatting and she said, but, you know, we we realized that we really need a chapter on psychiatric hospitals and we don't have anyone to write it. And then she looked at me and she said, would you like to write it? (laughs) <laughs> and I said, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, a master's of landscape architecture student and I'm sleeping like four hours a night. And, you know, I just moved from Rhode Island to California and no, no, no more work. Thank you. And so we had you know, finished lunch and I went back to studio and thought, can't give up this opportunity. That would be really, really stupid. And so I called her back from the studio phone. We still had phones and you know, actual phones. <laughs> mounted They'd on hang the on the wall, the right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, I'll do it. Okay. And it, I'm just, I'm so glad I did. It was a huge amount of work, but Claire and I got to visit several gardens together. And I learned so much about how to do research, how to write case studies, how to write, how to write for publication, uh, which I had not done before. And that was the beginning of a really strong relationship that Claire and I still have and a, a wonderful friendship that we have as well. Yeah. And I think one of the things that was really a light bulb moment for me when I first spoke to Claire uh, several years ago. Like each subset of people that is in need of healing, whatever that might be, have very Mm -hmm. different requirements. And one of the examples that Claire pointed out in terms of trying to describe evidence-based research for listeners was that if you are uh, going through therapy for cancer, if you are going through chemotherapy and you are experiencing extreme nausea, you really don't want to be in a garden that a hospital has sited right next to the cafeteria and the air ducts from the kitchen because those those smells are too strong. If you are yeah. a veteran who is returning with PTSD, you don't want to be in too enclosed a space or too open of a space. Like there are very different require. Like when we use that word healing, it's or therapeutic. It's so big 
that we have to drill down much further than that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's why thinking about and considering evidence-based design or some people say research informed design Mm -hmm. is so important when you're talking about vulnerable populations, like in healthcare facilities or correctional facilities or even underserved neighborhoods where people have less choice and control and are just much more vulnerable. And so the more that we can create indoor and outdoor spaces that allow them to thrive, the better everyone is. So let's fast forward a little bit into your founding of the network Mm -hmm. and what year you started it, which I think you've already mentioned, but we'll go ahead and remind us, and your original mission and purpose, and then how it actually works, how it manifests itself in the world at this point. Sure. So the Therapeutic Landscapes Network came out of the American Society of Landscape Architects, we have an annual meeting mm-hmm. every year. And this was, I think it was in Boston. It was 1999. And I had just graduated from Berkeley. And it was the first time we have these professional practice networks. They're groups within the ASLA that focus on specific issues. So there's a children's outdoor environments and there's a parks and there's a women professional practice network. I think there are about 15 of them now. And this was the first year that there was a healthcare and therapeutic design professional practice network. And probably 10 of us met and went around the circle and talked about who we were and what we did and why we were there. And a couple of things stood out. One, that most people had a very personal connection, why they were interested in therapeutic landscapes and healthcare design specifically. It mm-hmm. wasn't just, oh, I thought this would be cool to do. I want to put it in magazines. It was like, well, I was in the hospital for three months when I was a kid or my mother had cancer or, you know, something right. very personal. personal. Yeah. And what also struck us at that time was how little information there was. If you wanted to do evidence-based design, there was very little evidence to find in order to create a garden that was going to be have the best outcomes for the users. Mm -hmm. So we were frustrated because there was no kind of comprehensive bibliography or resource where we could say, oh, okay, so if we want to design a garden for people with Alzheimer's, what is the best type of fence to use? Is it true that a circular pathway where people don't just hit a dead end and then not know how to get back, is it true that that's the best practice? What type of paving surface is the best for people with mobility issues. Mm -hmm. There were so many questions that we had, and there were very few answers. And the other thing that we all had in common was that we were flung all over the country. And we were so we were like sponges for each other when we got in this room together. Because it's kind of lonely when you're 
in this niche field Mm -hmm. and you're doing this thing on your own and everyone thinks that you're just kind of doing this strange thing that doesn't really matter. And so we were really hungry for each other's company and each other's knowledge and expertise. And I said, well, wouldn't it be great if we could use this new thing called the World Wide Web to have an, a living bibliography? Because, you know, bibliography, as soon as it's published, it's out of date. But the great thing about the web is that you can have a list of resources, for example, and you just keep adding to it and it gets refreshed. And we could also use that to communicate with each other in a way that is a lot more efficient than just a list serve. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Dr. Naomi Sachs is an assistant professor in plant sciences and landscape architecture at the University of Maryland. As the founder and keeper of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, she's joining us today to share more about this professional field. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. So thinking out loud here, this is one of those conversations where I hear something and I think, yes, that is it. That is the pull-out vocabulary word of the week. And I wish you were all actually here with me in person to play along in real time. Can you guess the word? I bet you can. Did you hear it? Maybe I should just make Matt play the game as a stand-in for the rest of you. Hmm. I think a lot of you got it, heard it, marked it. Salutogenesis a medical approach focusing on factors that support human health and well-being rather than focusing on factors that cause disease. More specifically, the salutogenic model is concerned with the relationship between health, stress, and coping mechanisms. Now, Naomi did a very good job allowing this idea and that word the importance it deserves. But it's so good, I had to take us back to it. Salutogenesis. It's a good word to say. In the 2005 Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health, the salutogenic theory sense of coherence, coined by American-Israeli medical sociologist Aaron Antonovsky, is glossed in great depth as the authors advocate that, quote, the salutogenic approach could have a more central position in public health and health promotion, research, and practice. Furthermore, it could contribute to the solution of some of the most urgent public health problems of our time, such as the question of mental health promotion, end quote. Some of the key concepts that I took away were these. Salutogenesis as a theory and approach is remarkable for its strength of adaptability and universal use. It is a major life orientation, always focusing on problem solving. It reflects a person's view of life and capacity to respond to stressful situations. It's a global orientation to view the life as structured, manageable, and meaningful or coherent. As anyone who's listened to me for any length of time could quite easily predict what I will say next, and that is gardening and daily interactions as well as lifelong committed and loving relationships with the plants around us embodies salutogenesis. Hmm. 
So eat your greens, play with your greens, smell and touch your greens. Better problem solving, more effective coping, and improved mental health are bound to follow. Gardening is good for your body, mind, and soul. And from there, anything is possible. Now, back to our conversation with Dr. Naomi Sachs of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network on faculty at the University of Maryland. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with Naomi Sachs of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network. Eventually, the Therapeutic Landscapes database became the network, and their tagline is connecting people with information, with people, and with nature. Now, where once there was little information available about this field, there is often so much information that the challenge becomes vetting that information and the discernment to know the good from the marginal. As we come back, Naomi, who's in her first year of a tenure-track position in the Department of Plant Sciences and Landscape Architecture at the University of Maryland, shares more about the current state of the field. A lot of the kind of day-to-day work is really more in social media and facilitating conversations, posting relevant articles, research, questions, information that people can then use as a sounding board and jump from, oh, well, this is a really interesting article or this looks like a great book on how to forest bathe. And then they start a conversation about some forest bathing research that they've read about. So it's, it's been functioning like that for the past few years. And then my own research, in addition to therapeutic gardens and access to nature in healthcare, which has been my focus for about 15 years, I have started to expand that focus to other types of landscapes for health. So in underserved communities and public outdoor spaces, how can places be designed so that they promote health and human well-being and at the same time, the health and well-being of the planet? So you had mentioned climate change and, you know, it's it's easy to focus on just one thing and say, oh, we have to build this healing garden. I have seen gardens and healthcare facilities with PVC fences that are just horrible for the environment. You know, healthcare facilities in general, they emit a lot of toxins (laughs) and there's a lot of waste involved. So that's an emerging trend is trying to think more and act more holistically Mm -hmm. for health. For example, one of the papers that I and some colleagues just published is about the potential correlation between urban green space and violent crime. And we did a systematic literature review of, well, it started out thousands of articles that might be relevant and ended up with about 40 and found that for the most part, there is this 
correlation, not causation, at least, that the more green space there is, particularly if it's well-designed and well-managed, the less violent crime there is in urban spaces. And that's pretty powerful to be able to provide evidence, which then leads to financial support and policy support in municipalities for planting trees, for maintaining green spaces, um, for putting in greener schoolyards. This gets to one of those great kind of conflicts in our world. And you just stated the chain of effect, which is that when you have the evidence to support the fact that these green spaces, well-managed everywhere in healthcare facility, in a municipality, in our world, create better effects, which then have a translatable economic benefit for the people who are making decisions, then you can start to affect policy and actions. And the fact is that especially in an urban environment, you are having a lot of counter pressure, for instance, the loss of this garden at the Children's Museum in Boston came about because they needed more parking or they needed more, you know, facility space indoors. And this was the only place left to go or that's how they saw it. So the importance of putting quantitative value on these green spaces is not – it sounds mercenary and (laughs) it takes away what we love about these spaces. But it is imperative at this moment in time to make it clear to people who don't automatically see that value or feel that value in their own lives. We need to make it clear and we need to make it much more clear as quickly as we can. The importance is just – it cannot be – underscored enough, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And in another life, maybe I would be an accountant because I I think we really need more people who have a business head to look at the business case for nature. And there's this organization called the Valuing Nature Network. And they say our aim is to improve understanding of the value of nature, both in economic and non-economic terms. And that is critical mm-hmm. because we are always struggling for how to deal with limited resources. And if we can find win-win situations where planting trees not only looks beautiful, but also improves people's health and also shades a building so that you don't need to use as much air conditioning and also encourages people to shop more, which research shows that that happens, Mm -hmm. and also cleans the air of particulate matter, then everybody wins. Mm Yeah, and if it's a native tree and it provides habitat for birds and bees and and squirrels and whatnot, then you know it's win win win. And I I yeah. think you know, and we are at this point in human history, we are economically based and minded and motivated. And not everybody, but as cultures, we are set up that way. And we are not going to transition away from that overnight anytime soon, as much as some of us might like to see that happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's not going to work. And so, you know, 
a little over a year ago here in Northern California, we had one of the most devastating fires on the record in the state of California. Right now, as you and I speak, Australia is losing hundreds of thousands of acres and trees and wildlife and air quality and human value items, human built environment. And it's, you know, you think of hurricanes, you think of winter storms, like all of these things are only getting stronger. And it, I think I bring that up because it underscores where we've lost connection to nature and Mm. how, you know, healing isn't just an individual ailment or moment. It is a human condition that we are, we are in need of. When you think about some of the greatest expansion areas in the field at this point, what what do you see those as being, especially when you're presenting this to the young students in front of you who are coming up in the field? I think one of the things that is really exciting to me is the link to climate change and this broader look at not just a garden in a hospital or a school playground, but how are all of these things connected and how can we look at creating green spaces, creating public spaces, creating built spaces or maintaining existing spaces as wisely as possible and as holistically as possible. So that's one thing. Another thing that is exciting to me In research, we're focusing less on whether nature is restorative, because we know that. (laughs) And we really don't need a lot more research saying, yes, nature is restorative. We have so many more questions about, okay, well, how? And in landscape architecture in general, and I think also in the other design fields like architecture, and engineering, there's a much greater focus on diversity and inclusion and equity. And how can we make, for example, outdoor spaces, everyone has the right to those outdoor spaces. And yet, historically, at least in the past hundred years or so, being you know, wilderness and adventure and hiking, those are seen as very white middle-class engagements. And that is not the way it's supposed to be. Parks and woods and fields are for everybody. Every person has a right to be there and a right to reap the benefits of nature in all of its many beautiful forms. And there's a lot of soul searching and conversations about how can we allow and facilitate access for people who might not have access or who might not feel welcome. And then something that that I'm interested in, in exploring personally in my research in the next few years, and this is more back to healthcare, looking at nature less from the point of view of how can nature reduce the bad stuff and looking at, at it more from a what we call salutogenic point of view. So salus meaning health and genesis meaning the beginning. Um, so salutogenesis is the beginning of health or health promotion. How can we think of nature as health promoting and 
bringing good stuff rather than just ameliorating bad stuff (laughs) (laughs) to put it in a very basic way. So nature promotes joy. Nature brings out kindness and love and awe and appreciation and tenderness. And those are really, really important when people are stressed out, whether it's in college or in healthcare or in a poor neighborhood where people are working three jobs. And I am interested in exploring the neurological pathways and connections with animal therapy and mindfulness, a similar pathway that all of these good processes work with. And I would like to delve into that. Mm -hmm. I need to find a a good neuroscientist to pair up with. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I have heard, um, I have interviewed Florence Williams about her research for the nature fix. And uh, oddly enough, a former uncle of mine was Charles Jenks, who died earlier this year. Um, And he, of course, founded the the Maggie Centers after his uh, wife died of breast cancer. And yeah. those are a, a fascinating chain of of gardens in healthcare settings across the United Kingdom. Mm. So, you know, I, I think to get back to your inclusion and exclusion point, there is, I think, a lot of impetus right now in so many like populations to to get over these subtle pernicious biases that either allow for a perception to go forward or uh, keep full inclusion from happening. And mm-hmm. I was really interested in um, speaking with the landscape architect Mia Layer out of Los Angeles. And her, she is of El Salvadorian descent. And she talked about designing public spaces in LA from a cultural understanding different from the sort of white mainstream, you know, European descent mindset in L.A. And in order to have different cultures who use outdoor space and public space differently, seeing those cultural nuances and and allowing for them in a public space completely changed the way people used it. And I thought that was riveting and something you just, you don't, you can't see your own blind spots because they're your blind spots, right? So (laughs) that's what's so fun and hopeful about these innovations and this really analytical thinking about what we do and why we do it. And if there is a challenge or an obstacle, how do we see our way and innovate our way around it and through it? Because we're a smart species. We can can (laughs) figure out. Sometimes, right. And um, I think we need all of the kind of big thinking, compassionate minds that we, we have on issues just like this. Yeah, and I think what you say about the analytical is really important because people who are not embedded in research think of research a little bit more in a binary way. Like Mm -hmm. there's quantitative research with statistics and yeses and nos and blacks and whites, and then there's everything else. And actually, 
really good, solid, rigorous research can be qualitative, where you interview people or you do behavior mapping, observing what people do and when and where and how. And that is all valuable and can be more valuable than a randomized control trial where, you know, people still make up the rules, and they still analyze the data. So it's not like one is better than the other or one is any less biased than, than the other. And so when you were talking about Mia Lehrer, it makes me think about the importance of participatory design mm-hmm. and how that can be as powerful a tool for research as going into the library or going into Google Scholar and looking for, you know, some very specific question. Because if you're going into a community and designing an outdoor space, what that community needs is not probably going to be in Google. (laughs) It's going to be talking to that community and seeing how they use the space. And so that too, I think landscape architecture is paying more attention to bottom up or collective approaches rather than just the landscapes architect saying, well, I went to school and I know everything (laughs) and I think that you need this big plaza with a big water feature and it's going to look great in Landscape Architecture Magazine. You're welcome. (laughs) So I'm, I'm very happy to see this almost going back to the 60s and 70s where people were valued, all sorts of different people were valued and the people that we're designing for are some of our greatest sources of knowledge Yeah. in addition to the books. Well, this part of our conversation is bringing to mind your reference early in the conversation about being in that first small group of people talking about this idea and you're noting, importantly, that they were not there for like a resume filling out. They were there because they cared on a personal basis. And this brings to mind interviews with Robin Kimmerer and her work study into traditional ecological knowledge and the importance of not as our Western academic science has often done, which is asking us to remove our personal cares and issues in order to not muddy research, the importance of actually bringing our personal cares to bear, hopefully with as little bias as possible, but still as much personal motivation. Yes. And the the importance of that as we move forward, because if we don't care, we won't take the next steps that this research is pointing us in the direction of. That's right. And and we won't keep going. (laughs) Right, right. We might start, but then it gets boring or we get tired or frustrated and we don't stay the course and we don't inspire other people and get other people fired up and involved. So, yeah, I agree completely. And in that way, the whole field of therapeutic landscapes or healing gardens is a really effective two-way street that nature is healing us and hopefully we are learning as people of all varieties, whether we are home gardeners or accountants or scientific researchers, how to heal some of the damage we've done to nature. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a really interesting 
set of studies that have looked at childhood engagement with nature. And basically, the more children of young and middle childhood years have good experiences with nature, the more likely they are to become stewards later in life. Yep. And this is important, not just that they might go clean up the trash in their neighborhood park, but also they're voters and they pay taxes mm-hmm. when they grow exactly. up and they can decide whether whether the city continues paying taxes for a park or not, or for the Grand Canyon to be maintained and our National Park Service and our National Forest Service. So yep. if we can inculcate a love of and nurturing for nature young and keep that going and keep people passionate, then that ensures everyone's future. That's the idea anyway. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add? Um, you mentioned the um, the garden at Boston Children's, mm-hmm. which was the, the Prouty Garden. Yep. And they did take that down. And there was an incredible community organization fighting that garden being destroyed. And they have now built the first of a series of rooftop gardens at Boston Children's. And before I came to University of Maryland, I was a postdoc at Cornell for a couple of years. And one of my and my former boss, she's in the Department of Design and Environmental Analysis. She's a master's student and her research has been on that new rooftop garden at Boston Children's and using the healthcare garden evaluation toolkit that I designed for my dissertation to do a post-occupancy evaluation of that garden and see how it's working. Is it working the way that they expected? What's working, what's not working? And she's come up with some really powerful, interesting results. And I'm so excited for her to finish the data analysis and and write it up in her thesis. It's so good to see something that was very powerful to people, but for a number of reasons had to go away and something else was built. And rather than just taking Boston Children's word for it and saying, oh, okay, yeah, you built a healing garden on the rooftop like you said you would, let's hold them accountable and say, okay, how how does it fare and how does it compare to what was lost? And can the wound of losing the garden be healed with this new garden too. And given that we are in a world in which losses are occurring daily to uh, figure out how to grow from those wounds is going to be a primary task for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been an honor to speak with you. Likewise, thank you so much.
Dr. Naomi Sachs is founding director of the Therapeutic Landscapes Network, a knowledge base and gathering space that provides information, education, advocacy, and inspiration about landscapes that promote health and well-being. Having been a postdoctoral associate at Cornell University in the Department of Design and Environmental Analysis, Naomi is now on faculty at the University of Maryland as an assistant professor in plant sciences and landscape architecture. Join us again next week when we continue our multi-week series on healing and the garden when we're joined by Perla Corbello, a plantswoman and gardener in Puerto Rico who has recently completed her horticultural therapy certificate through the Chicago Botanic Garden. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from and heal from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over at cultivatingplace.com this week, make sure to check out Naomi Sachs' images from therapeutic landscapes designed and used by practitioners around the globe. While you're there, you can also read this month's A View From Here newsletter with a lot of updates on my public appearances, starting with the Northwest Flower and Garden Show in Seattle, Washington, February 26th and 27th. Maybe I will see you there. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.